Hi. It's nice to be out here all the way from South Carolina. I think we most often teach what we need to learn. And this particular precept is one that can you... Is this working? Okay. This particular precept, the fourth precept, is one that, especially as an attorney and a mediator, I seem to spend a lot of time with. I think it must be the one that Stephen Colbert was referring to when he came up with the term truthiness. It's it's at the heart of who we are as human beings in a very deep and fundamental way. The words we speak. I undertake to refrain from false speech, harmful speech, gossip, and slander. Several years ago, I was at a conference of an organization I used to run called the Association for Conflict Resolution. And Arun Gandhi was the principal speaker. Arun is the grandson of the great Mahatma Gandhi who created India being free from British rule. And he told some stories, several stories, about his relationship with his grandfather. But the story that stuck with me the most was a story he told about the relationship with his father, Gandhi's son. If you know anything about the history of Gandhi, you know that he started his nonviolent work in South Africa, where he led the Indian people who were being persecuted in South Africa to a nonviolent approach. And that work led to his returning to India, where he continued that work in the way that we're most familiar with. When he left South Africa, his son remained there at uh, Phoenix Farms, a small village 18 miles or so north of Durban, out in the country. And Arun said that it was a great thrill for them to go to the city. He and his sister were the only children and they were out there on the farm by themselves. And one day his dad came and said, I have a conference in Durban. Will you drive me? That was a big no-brainer. He was very excited even though his mom gave him a whole list of chores, things he needed to do, shopping he needed to do, etc. When they got to the city, his father instructed him where to leave him off at the conference center and he said, Now, Arun, please come back and pick me up at 5 p.m. when the conference is over. And after you've finished doing the chores for your mom, leave the car in the shop because it needs some work. Arun was very excited and raced through the chores that his mom had given him and then dropped the car off at the garage and made a beeline for the movie theater where there was a double bill of John Wayne. A couple of cowboy movies that his father would have been very distressed for him to see. He sat through the double bill and got so wrapped up in the second feature that he didn't realize that it ran much past the time he needed to leave to pick up his dad. And he was an hour late getting there. When his dad got in the car and said, where have you been? He lied. He said, the garage was very slow in getting the car fixed and I had to wait for them, not thinking that the garage would have been the first place his dad would have called to find out where he was. Now think about you if you've had children and think about your own attitude towards this concept of Refraining from false speech, lying, truthiness, all the ways we hold sacred our word. Think how you would respond to your child in that situation. And Arun's dad did something that absolutely stunned me when I heard the story. He said, Arun, I need to get out of the car 
and walk home. I need to spend time contemplating how it is I have failed you as a parent that you should be afraid to tell me the truth. And Arun said, but dad, it's 18 miles home on a country road, rough and dark. You can't do that. And his father made no response except to get out of the car and start to walk. Arun, of course, was beside himself, he said, and he couldn't leave his father walking along that dark country road alone while he drove home. So he crept along behind him for the six hours it took his dad to walk home. He vowed to live a life of truthfulness. In considering this fourth fourth precept tonight, I want us to look at four questions. I invite you to look at them with me. The first one is, how do we work skillfully with the precepts? The second one is, what gives words their power? The third, how can we learn to speak more skillfully, to foster our own awakening? And finally, what are two major areas where we almost consistently failed, fail to practice wise speech? But before we do that, I'm, I'm used to mediating and being in court and a lot of activity, so it's hard for me to talk at you. So turn to someone next to you and just for a couple of minutes discuss this question. What do I most need to learn and practice regarding this fourth precept? So especially someone you don't know sitting next to you, uh, introduce yourself and spend just a couple of moments discussing that question. What do I most need to learn and practice regarding the fourth precept? You can do it. I know you're expecting to be talked at, but take a moment to speak. All right, thank you, partner. And do a couple of you... A couple of you like to say what it is you most need to learn or practice about the fourth precept. What is our sharing mic, Maureen? Anyone? A question about what you most need to practice? <laughs> um, there were, is this on? Okay. Yes. Um, there were four, I guess, qualities of the precept that you yes. had spoken of? Yes, we're going to talk about those. Okay. Um, and one was uh, the way to uh, to speak about uh, the truthfulness, uh-huh. way of expressing it, expressing it. And for me, um, personally, in my experience, and it's 50 years on, on earth, is the rings of truthfulness are sometimes choosing the lesser of two evils to serve the greater good. And sometimes in that manner, the truthfulness comes from that which serves all humanity. And uh, as I expressed it, don't have uh, heard it, is don't give the devil any more information that is necessary. All right. Thanks. Anyone else? Okay. I'll talk. I'll give you another chance. Don't worry. So for those of us, those of you who are familiar with Buddhist practice in general, the Eightfold Path and most everything about fundamental Buddhist practice breaks down into three areas. Sila, or virtue, Samadhi, or meditation, and Pana, or wisdom. Virtue, meditation, and wisdom. Obviously, the precepts fall into the first category. 
of virtue. The word sila, the etymological root of it and Pali, is bed, which I sort of scratched my head around for quite a while. But then, as you think of it, the bedrock of our practice, the foundation of our practice, the Buddha consistently taught, is virtue. It is the beginning. It is the place where we begin. And in the West, I think one of the struggles we have with our Buddhist practice is most of us started with meditation. That's how we came in. That's what we were interested in. But in a more traditional approach to Buddhist wisdom, the foundation is practicing the precepts, practicing the compassion and generosity that underlay the precepts. We have a rather twisted view of morality in the West, twisted from the point of view of Buddhism. Because when I think about morality, I think about the way it was taught to me as the son of a very long line of Southern Baptist ministers. We had quite a different view of virtue. There were commandments and rules that we were to follow. And there were beliefs that we adhered to. So it was either rules or beliefs, and mostly both. And there's something very different about the way the Buddha presented virtue. If you think about rules, they are something that when we break, when we violate the rule, we feel guilty. We feel bad that we have failed to follow those rules. And I don't know about you, but guilt is not a very helpful feeling. Generally, it doesn't motivate me in the highest way. I feel depressed. I feel not so good about myself. And my mind is anything but steady. I am thinking rapidly over and over about my failings as a human being, as opposed to having a steady and quiet mind. On the other hand, beliefs call forth from me a sense of rigidity and certainty and rightness about who I am, what I believe, how I am to approach my life. So in considering the question of how do we work skillfully with the precepts, one thing that I have come to is the recognition that my heritage from the Western religious viewpoint of rules to be broken or beliefs to be adhered to isn't a very helpful approach. The Buddha was much more pragmatic. He spoke of these five precepts, which were given to us as lay people to practice. He spoke of them in a number of different ways. He spoke of them as training rules. He spoke of them as virtues. And he spoke of them as truths. As training rules, we are in training to wake up. We are in training to calm and quiet our minds, to train our minds to see clearly with discernment. So here the difference between I undertake the training rule to refrain from killing and harming living beings as opposed to thou shalt not kill. Or, the one we're talking about tonight, I undertake the training rule to refrain from false speech, harmful speech, gossip and slander, as opposed to, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. For me, there's a whole different flavor and context in those two approaches. We voluntarily take on a training precept. We voluntarily take it on to investigate what's it like. What happens to my mind when I come up against speaking falsely or gossiping about someone? Does it work for me? How do I feel? 
What happens to me when I realize that I have done that? What happens to my body? What happens to my connection to that person or those people? Those are things that we can investigate inside the concept of seeing it as a training rule, as a process of awakening, as a process of development. Gill said recently that he likes to think of the precepts as mirrors. And that took a little bit for me to get my mind around. But a mirror is something that reflects back. And so when I practice restraining myself voluntarily in order to quiet my mind, in order to open my heart, and I see myself fail sometimes to do that, and I feel what that's like, and I see the impact of that, it's reflected back to me so that I can see myself in that light. If I succeed in those restraints, and that's reflected back to me, I can see what that result is. And the investigation continues. So the restraint is a way to train our minds because we have trained our mind, especially in the West, to want. Our culture trains our minds to want. Everywhere we turn, there's something for us to want. There's an aspect of life for us to want. And we want more of whatever that is. So our minds naturally want. We have to retrain our mind not to get caught in that wanting. Because as we know, the fundamental truth, one of the fundamental truths that the Buddha taught was the craving of our minds, the wanting of our minds is a huge source of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the way we experience life. So consider as a skillful and helpful way to work with these precepts, changing the context, changing the flavor of the way you approach them from some rigid rule to be held to or broken or some belief system about what is right or wrong or moral or immoral to the concept of, huh, I'm in training to quiet my mind, to still my mind, to open my heart, to learn to have deeper compassion for myself and others and generosity. So, another chance to talk with your partner and think about this question. How have I viewed the practice of virtue, of the commandments, whatever tradition you were taught in? And how have I viewed these precepts in beginning my Buddhist understanding and my Buddhist training? Has my approach to date been skillful? What can you see about the way in which you have worked with rules and regulations and precepts in that whole domain? So spend a couple of moments discussing that question. So what's foundational is the way we hold virtue, the way we hold the precepts informs how we can work with them and how we can integrate them into our lives. There's something particular about this one, however, this fourth precept around false speech. And what's particular about it is the power of words. Words have a different power. The philosophy of the word is something that goes back way into ancient times. It has gone through all cultures and imbued the way all of us hold ourselves. And the Buddha described it very clearly in the Dhammapada, this philosophy of the word. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. That's actually been more and more proved in the new science of neurobiology. There's a wonderful book by two 
Chilean neuroscientist Francisco Varelli and Humberto Maturana called the Tree of Knowledge, which talks about how cognition is what separates living beings from non-living beings, the ability to cognate, the ability to know, and that with that ability, we literally make our world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you. As your shadow, unshakable. How can a troubled mind understand the way? The power of words is in creating our world and more fundamentally to us as individuals, we create ourselves. And as we know from Buddhist teaching, we create the false sense of self, the eyeing and myeing that traps us. The impermanence of the world, everything changing, and the unsatisfactoriness of that constant change hooks us. And in desperation to hold on to something, we create ourselves. We language ourselves. We have stories about ourselves. We have stories about who we are in various and sundry situations. We have stories about who we are with different people. We have stories about the way we like things to be. We have stories about the way we like other people to be. And most of our conversations are made up of those stories. Words have that kind of power. So naturally, given that power of words and given the fundamental nature of our connection to our false sense of self and to each other through those words, this particular precept is a big hook for all of us. So given that, how can we learn to speak more skillfully in order to foster our awakening? The Buddha was a pretty cool dude, as best as I can tell, and having all these wonderful lists and, you know, five things of this and four of that and three of the other and 16 of this, it's a lot to hold on to. But he had five characteristics of wise speech, of a way to practice this precept. And I found them to be extraordinarily challenging, extraordinarily clear and very complete. The foundational one of the five is an intention to support, an intention of generosity, an intention of loving kindness. When I speak, do I think about what my intention is? Sometimes. It goes a lot better when I do. But very often, I find myself running up the stairs and speaking in a way that is just completely unmindful and creating difficulties for myself that day and the next because I haven't spoken with an intention to be supportive and nurturing around whatever my conversation is to be. There's a tire dealership right behind the courthouse where I work in downtown San Francisco. And I don't know who runs it, but they're, I really need, am going to walk over there and find out. They have a big billboard where they put up quotations every month or so they change it. And the one that's up there now reads, you only know what you've said when you know what someone has heard. Gore Vidal allegedly said that. I've never read much Gore Vidal, so I can't affirm that that is so. But I love that quote, and I've been seeing it 
virtually every day for the last month or so. And the last few days have been a good experience of that. How often have we heard ourselves saying, I didn't mean to hurt you, or I wished I hadn't said that, or as soon as the words were out of my mouth, I wanted to pull them back in. That intention is fundamental. And it's the most important part that we need to work on. And in terms of our mindfulness practice, in terms of our meditation, watching what happens to our mind and what's the intention behind that movement, behind that mind state, is the place that I've struggled the most in my practice. It's the most difficult for me to find. But when I find it, insights and discernment and clarity arise. So the first characteristic of wise and careful speech is being aware of an intention of generosity and loving kindness. The second one is truthfulness, including exaggeration, half-truths, omissions. Remember, it's a practice. It's a training rule. Do-overs are allowed. We can actually go back and say, geez, I really wasn't fully truthful here. There is more that I need to say. Or I said too much. And clean up and correct our mistakes. Initially, in my experience, more knowledge about myself, generally speaking, is bad news in the beginning. But as that process continues, it shifts. As I allow myself to be truthful in process. My favorite Gandhi story, a woman comes to visit Gandhi and says, my son has just been diagnosed with diabetes and he can't eat sugar, but he won't stop. And I'm very concerned about him eating sugar. He respects you so much, Mr. Gandhi. Would you please encourage him not to eat sugar? And Gandhi said, sure. Come back in three days. And the woman went away and dutifully returned three days later. And Gandhi took the young man into his study and sat him down and talked to him about caring for his body and the importance of not eating sugar, given particularly his medical diagnosis. And the young man was very impressed with his time with Gandhi and left. And as they were leaving, his mother turned to Gandhi and said, thank you so much, Mr. Gandhi, for speaking to my son in such a meaningful way. But tell me, why did you ask me to come back in three days? Because I had to stop eating sugar, he said. Having that attention to our own truthfulness makes a difference. The third characteristic of wise speech is kindness. And I marry those two together. Truthfulness and kindness as pairs, as bookends. So that when we speak, are we going too fast? Are we running over that place of compassion in our heart? Are we thinking about the tone of our voice, the way that we're speaking? Truthfulness and kindness. Then, there's helpfulness and timeliness. Very often, I will be talking to a friend and they're telling me about what's going on with them and I go immediately in my mind to, oh, I've had that exact situation happening. I know exactly what to do. So I've hopped right to fixing their problem. Now, they may want just a listening ear. They may want empathy. They may want compassion. But I've hopped to fixing their problem. Or, in another situation, I'm speaking to my daughter. And I definitely know how to fix all of her problems. <laughs> but I've slowly learned that she's often not very interested in the solutions that I have to offer. 
So when we think about whether what we're saying will be helpful to the person, it's married with the timeliness of it. Is my helpful comment at a place and a time where that person is receptive to those comments? Are they interested in it? Is there something else they want? Am I saying it on the fly, in passing, not giving the time and attention to when is an appropriate moment? Am I failing to say, I have something troubling I need to speak with you about. Could we schedule a time to talk about it instead of blurting it out over the breakfast table in a place that's not timely and not helpful? So, an intention to support, truthfulness, paired with kindness, and helpfulness paired with timeliness. That construct is what the Buddha gave to help us learn to speak wisely. Yes? Hold it just a second while we get the mic for the taping purposes. So a shortcut you use shortcut is to... shortcut I, I use to um, help in um, mindful speech or art speech is... Um, just watching one's compulsion. Um, if I jump into a, a story or jump into, I want to get whatever I have immediately out. Um, compulsion usually gets in the way of anything mindful. Um, yes. So that or I, I uh, preface whatever I'm going to say is that you can only uh, hurt the ones you love and so then Yes, thanks. So, my last question is the two areas where, in my experience, we most often forget to practice wise speech. The first of those areas is believing that the truth lies within us. There's a phrase in our culture which I think is the worst oxymoron of our time. Let me share with you my truth. The truth, in my experience, emerges among us, especially in relationship. I have a piece. I have a perspective. I have some ideas. I have my feelings, which are valid feelings, I have my thoughts, my ideas, but it's just a piece. And I offer that in the service of allowing something to emerge between us that is quite different, perhaps, than what I see or what you see. But together, we create and allow something to emerge. I've seen this happen over and over again in mediation. Parties in conflict come in and they both believe firmly that they are absolutely right about every aspect of what happened and that the other, of course, is absolutely wrong. And they're just talking like this. And the conflict is intense and the emotion is intense. And think of how often in your life, in your work, in your relationships, in your friendships, you've been in exactly that situation. Where your perspective, we hold our perspective, not as our perspective, but as my truth. So a place to really work with wise speech, in my experience, is in believing that the truth lies within us. Ken Wilber, in A Brief History of Everything, wrote, the amazing fact is that truth alone will not set you free. Truthfulness will set you free. So the process of speaking as truthfully as I can and sharing with a compassionate, truthful, kind, helpful and timely and a good intention with the, with the sound experience that truth emerges in that conversation is a place to work. The second one, I think, is even harder for most of us, 
because most of us have very many skillful ways that we avoid conflict. Direct truthfulness is essential, I believe. Speaking up when it is hard for us to speak. Lying by omission, by silence, is still lying. We all face difficult conversations, places where it's difficult to speak. And certainly sometimes silence is the most appropriate response. But silence because we're afraid to speak, silence because we're afraid to share our perspective, is an edge that I encourage you to look at. It's certainly an edge for me. I had a difficult meeting today at lunch and a difficult conversation. And I found myself getting to that difficult conversation, nervous, a little wet under the arms. And with that energy arising in my body of tightness and anticipation. That edge helped me to stay mindful and present. And the conversation turned out to be extraordinarily beautiful. When I came from the place of the truth would emerge between the two of us and the intention, the truthfulness, as opposed to truth, the kindness, the helpfulness, and the timeliness. This is from a wonderful book by Jack Kornfeld, The The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace. He writes that he was once on a train from Washington to Philadelphia and he sat next to a man who had worked for the Department of State in India and returned to run a rehabilitation program for juveniles in D.C. And there was a 14-year-old boy in his program that had killed a completely innocent teenage boy in D.C. just so he could prove himself to gain membership into a gang. And he was went through a trial in juvenile court and was convicted of that murder. After the verdict was announced, the victim's mother had sat through the entire trial. And after the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly in court, stared directly at the young man who had just been convicted and stated, I'm going to kill you. Then he was taken away to juvenile jail where he had a several year sentence. After about six months, this mother started to visit him. He'd been living out on the streets and had no family and she was his first visitor. She left him some money to buy cigarettes and over the course of the next two and a half years, she visited him more and more frequently, leaving him money, small gifts, etc. When it came close to the time that he was to be released, she asked him what he would be doing when he got out. He was confused and very uncertain, so she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live. He had no family to return to. She offered him temporary use of the spare room in her home. For eight months, he lived there, ate her food, worked at the job. Then one evening, she called him into the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him and waited. Then she started. Do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? I sure do, he replied. Well, I did, she went on. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live here in my house. That's how I sat about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone 
and the killer is gone, if you'll stay here. I've got room, and I'd like to adopt you if you will let me. And she became the mother of the son's killer, the mother he never had. The power of words, the power of an intention of compassion, married with truthfulness, extraordinary truthfulness, I want to kill you, and I will, and kindness, and a very deliberate process of helpfulness that was timely and patient. It's an extraordinary example of the power of wise speech. Questions, comments? What an incredible story. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yes, Linda, I think the mic is coming your way. Um, I'd like to know how you suggest handling a situation where one is being lied to. Where one is being lied one is to, being lied to, deliberately, hmm. consistently. Hmm. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and she lies to all of our family, and um, we all know it. And um, it just goes on and on. <laughs> None of us really knows what to do about it. Well, if we look at these five characteristics of wise speech, the place to begin would be examining what your intention is with your daughter and looking deeply to see what it is. Is it to make her wrong? Is it to support her? Is it to have her be a certain way that you want her to be? and she's resisting, what is your intention? That's a place to begin, it seems to me. And then, what is not the truth that you need to say to her? What is a process of truthfulness that you can begin calling her on the obviousness of her lies, in as kind, those two paired, kind a way as possible. And then looking more deeply at what will be helpful and timely. It may have to have the characteristics of patience that the woman in the story demonstrated over the process of a number of years. It may require looking deeply into your own life in terms of where your truthfulness is with yourself, with each other in the family. Sometimes I think children act out something that's going on in the family dynamic. But I believe, Linda, it's a very beautiful and profound question and a troubling one for sure that all of us who have had teenagers have dealt with in some way or another. But I'm convinced that if you take those five characteristics one at a time, focus on them and look deeply into each one, things will change. I couldn't give an answer better than the Buddha. Those five. <laughs> Take those. I don't ask for that. <laughs> Someone else. Thank you, Linda. Thank you.
Yes, Michael, my buddy, who came from Sausalito with me. Yes. I think that um, on the subject of holding back and um, not expressing one's true opinion sometimes, if you want to call that a form of lying, is that the distinction between harming and hurting is a blur very often. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes we have to hurt people um, with our words in order to be truthful, but that doesn't necessarily harm them. It could help them. Yes. So I think um, a lot of the difficulty with this aspect of of right speech has to do with the blur between hurting and harming. I wonder if you might want to address that. Well, the Buddha said that when he knew his words had a pure intent, were truthful and kind, helpful and timely, he spoke regardless of whether his words would be, quote, unwelcome and disagreeable to others or welcome and agreeable to others. So he looked at his five characteristics to see if they were there. And I know from my own experience that when I withhold something, I, it eats at me. It separates me from that person. And I end up having judgments about that person. And I gossip in my own head about them. And I'm pulled to gossip with someone else about them. If, on the other hand, I go directly to them and speak to them from a place of believing that I'm right and the truth is in me, then that conversation usually goes right straight down into the toilet. If I go to them from the place that I have a view, I have some hurt feelings or some anger or some upset, but it's just a piece of it, and I'm willing for the truth to emerge between us. I'm willing for the uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen. I'm willing to acknowledge my part. I'm willing to be humble about screwing up and messing up. That direct communication frees me, and most often, I think, frees them as well. And our relationship becomes much deeper and much more profound. That's the way it works in my investigation, my own experience. And I mostly make a mess of it. And so I've learned by making a lot of messes and going back and cleaning them up. Yes. I find the aspect of... um uh, being untruthful by omission kind of a hard thing to navigate because when you're omitting something you know, one could look at one's intention if you have the presence of mind but it's is it because of um, a social grace or not wanting to hurt somebody or it's just embarrassing or you know, there's a variety of you know it's much easier to keep one's counsel, not say a thing. Mm-hmm. So how do you, um, how do you decide or monitor the things that you're seeing that you're omitting and decide what to do with it? For me, that's where the, the last three of the five characteristics are the most helpful. Because what I'm going back and forth about saying may in fact be truthful from my perspective. But in reverse order, there's the issue of, is this a good time? Am I in a group of people sitting around a table and it's a social situation and it's not the time for some deep personal conversation or it's not the time for some controversial conversation? 
or would it be helpful to them? It may be something that, in the case of Linda's daughter, everyone in the family knows that she's not being truthful. But for some reason in her own mind, she can't get a grasp on that yet. There's some developmental place that the person hasn't gotten to. So it's not helpful to them at that time. It's beyond where they are. And that's a discernment that we have to work with by by mistake is the best way I've worked at it. Doing it and failing and sort of learning from that. And then the hardest one for me, the very hardest one for me, is kind. The tone of my voice, the intention with which I'm coming, compassion as opposed to being right, that's the one that hooks me. So when I work on those three characteristics, that guides me in those situations. Inclination of mind. Others will speak falsehoods. We shall abstain from false speech. Thus one should incline the mind. Others will speak maliciously. We shall abstain from malicious speech. Thus one should incline the mind. Others will gossip. We shall abstain from gossip. Thus one should incline the mind. Others will be unmindful. We shall be established in mindfulness. Thus one should incline the mind. Others will lack wisdom. We shall cultivate wisdom. Thus one should incline the mind. Thank you very much for coming out. Your attention, your questions, your comments. Wonderful. Bless us all.